Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. time of day, everyone. This is episode 44 of Americans Watching the Footy. It's our round 17 recap. I'm Ethan Castle. I'm Benjamin Castle. We're here in South San Francisco, California. So, remember that time I fell asleep and missed an after the siren goal? Yeah, it's happened to me now as well. This time it was your turn. The incredible finish between the Suns and Tigers. I saw it live. You didn't. I guess we're even now. But you also didn't have to wake up pretty early for work. I do have a new job, though. By the time this will be pushed, it'll be even LinkedIn official and in the Twitter bio and everything. Tomorrow, or I guess technically today now, July 11th, will be my first day as the prep sports editor with the San Francisco Standard. This really shouldn't change much with this show, but just wanted to mention it, pat myself on the back. All that stuff. I'm patting you on the back, but you don't like me touching you in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, you're gross. But yeah, I'm really proud of you. I know you've been working toward getting employment like this for a while. This may be even a step above what you were expecting. I'm definitely going to be making more than I was expecting to. And who knows, maybe you being in the media like this, more established, could allow for some greater connections relating to other sports in, in some ways. More importantly, I should be in a position soon where I have a car that doesn't have 260,000 miles on it. Don't get me wrong, the Honda Accord has served me well. What's the point of having a Honda if you can't show it on? But from a practical standpoint, I'd rather have something with like less than a quarter of the mileage. And quite frankly, you deserve a new car at this point. And a new car! Before we get into breaking down the nine games of this round and trying not to be too long-winded, which may be a challenge because a lot happened, we've got news. First off, Jacinta Franklin is becoming an agent. I don't really know what to make of this. I mean, not anything I expected, but Buddy's wife has completed the required courses, maybe in late stages and stages of his career. She's looking to go into helping him manage things. Maybe he's looking to pursue that path with her. Definitely an interesting item. I just don't know how much we can read into it at this point. The actual course you have to take to become an accredited agent only takes like three days. So maybe that should be inspiration to all of you to take this up. Via the Herald Sun and Daily Mail, You've got to apply, then complete a three-day course, which costs $3,300, and then you have a three-hour exam. Well, good agents are required to get players the terms they want and to the destinations they want in trades, and there has definitely been a lot of trade talk this week looking toward the offseason surrounding Fremantle in a couple capacities. Firstly, continued talk of Luke Jackson, 
potentially heading west and Let's be real, he'd be going to Frio, not West Coast. He grew up supporting Frio. They are more than in a flag window. And Darcy and Jackson just already sound scary to me as a duo. Would definitely allow Luke to do as much forward work, if not more than he currently does. Also could lead to Lloyd Meek going elsewhere. I've been arguing for him to get his shot, whether it's with the Dockers or somewhere else entirely, because he's awesome. He's definitely someone that I would expect Melbourne to try to pursue in exchange for Jackson. Then there's also developments surrounding Rory Lobb, where news of his personal issues at Fremantle have emerged. And despite being from Western Australia, he wants a trade to Victoria with the Bulldogs and Saints labeled as early favorites. Yeah, I don't know what these personal issues are, but I think it's definitely something to follow moving forward because things seem very happy at Fremantle right now. There was some idea that if Lobb ended up with the Bulldogs, you could see Aaron Naughton shifted to a different role. I don't know. He seems pretty good in the spot he currently occupies, but I see how his versatility could play in different positions. And he's still young, so there's plenty of time for him to adapt to a new role. He entered the organization as a back, so from that point of view, it makes sense. But also, I think we're really going to have to see what Josh Bruce being back in the side soon, ideally, will do for him in terms of support up there. He often seems like he's the lone target at times, and Bruce should definitely take some of that weight off him. As for St. Kilda, maybe it would allow Max King to do more work like his twin brother, where he's doing some more running, more half-forward work, and I would definitely support that change for him because of how good of a mark he is all around the oval. Also, positive news around Collingwood. Seems like it's been hard to come by other than Mason Cox becoming a dual citizen, but Leon Davis and Andrew Cracker are two of the three former players who announced that they were cutting ties with the club in April have returned. This was all after the Do Better report and the two players being engaged in discussions on how to remedy the issues that persisted at the club. Talks stagnated between those two and Harish Elabumba and the new club structure. Clearly, some things have been worked out. And I'm and I'm surprised and pleased by the news. We'll be interested in hearing Lumumba's remarks. One last piece of news. Next year, instead of doing the floating fixtures after the first nine or so rounds, the AFL is going to announce the first 15 rounds schedule all at once. As much as I like the flexibility and making sure that games didn't coincide with each other, it seems like the biggest issue here is for interstate travel for fans. Which makes sense. There could also be, perhaps from standpoint of stadiums themselves hosting games, wanting to know in advance when they're going to need to be staffed, etc. And maybe the new TV deal will impact things as well. Whoever gets the new deal just wants to know their schedule earlier as well. What I would like to see, if you're going to go back to this, is you know maybe know for the first 15 rounds, or at least some of those mid-season rounds, you know, this is your Thursday game, this is your Friday game, and then maybe these are your Saturday games, and then we'll sort out the times to make sure that the good ones don't overlap. Although, with much more time to prepare, they still have managed to screw that up, like this coming round. You know, we're going to give North Melbourne their own time slot, but have Geelong play Carlton and Sydney play Fremantle at the exact same time. That, that sounds like a really good idea. Speaking of scheduling, we unfortunately are about to say goodbye to Thursday Night Footy for the remainder of the season. Unfortunately, from our American perspective, clearly Australians don't like it nearly as much as we do. 
But our final Thursday night game of the year, unless we're fortunate enough to get one in round 23 somehow, which is highly unlikely. Or the first week of finals, if all four games would be at the G. Well, I'd like to think I have a pretty good grasp on my own team. I'm usually able to read the Geelong Cats pretty accurately, but after that St. Kilda loss, remember when I said they have a high floor and a low ceiling? I guess the ceiling's a little bit higher than I first thought, because Cats are now in first place after a 28-point win over the Demons, 12-19-91 to 9-9-63. And the margin flatters Melbourne. Geelong's inaccuracy meant that they couldn't make this really, really hurt in terms of percentage, but they outplayed Melbourne the whole way. And say what you want about Cardinia Park, regardless of venue, it would have been Geelong's day. Consider that Jeremy Cameron didn't score a goal. Tom Hawkins had just one. Cameron and Tyson Stengel combined to miss three really easy shots. You know, when you look at the Cats kicking 12-19, those numbers can be misleading. But if you actually look at the quality of shots they missed, they did leave a lot of points out there. When you look at not just the angle on the shots, but who was taking them. Because, you know, the same shot for Jeremy Cameron isn't the same as if Mark Blitzovs is taking it. Love Blitzovs, but he's not a great kick for goal. Cats held a two-point lead after a quarter, four points at half, led by 12 after three, but had led by 23, and it felt like the Demons were coming. That's what she said. We got back up to 20 early in the fourth. Tom Hawkins got the benefit of a call in what, up until that point, had been a game officiated in Melbourne's favor. I think it evened out some as the game went on, because... Up until that point, if you just breathed on Max Gallon, he got a free kick. Fritch missed a dribbler that kept the margin at 19, but even so, the Ds were able to get it down to six. They had all the momentum. They were running downhill. Uh, Petraka had gotten up to three goals at this point. He'd scored a couple early off-center clearances, very clearly back in goal-kicking form after having not really had it since the grand final. But even when they were missing, the momentum was squarely in their direction. The Kazi Pickett miss stood out to you for just how Melbourne still looked so on top of things. They were just exuding confidence. I was just going to get to that. After a Fritch miss cut the lead to 68-62, Pickett was able to take a really nice mark where he closed in on a kick that looked like it was way too far for him. He hit the post, came out of it smiling, and you're thinking at that point, oh shit, they know they've got this. They're only down five with 12 and a half to go. They're in really good shape. Their body language tells you everything you need to know. And then they never scored again. Instead, Cam Guthrie scored, sparking one of the best crowd shots of the season. A really good sequence from Reese Stanley to Hawkins, who had a handball through his legs that ultimately led to Brad Close giving up a shot to give Mitch Duncan an opportunity. Duncan scored to stretch the lead to 20, and then Tyson Stengel added one on to ensure the Cats had the percentage to leave this game in first place with a 91-63 win. Again, this was a game where they left a lot of points out there, and they won without a lot of the usual suspects playing well. Instead, it was kind of a different cast. Yes, Patrick Dangerfield was good. Cam Guthrie was good. Tom Atkins was a tackling machine, but... My favorite individual performance of the night actually came from Max Holmes. In no way did I expect to leave this game most impressed by a Geelong winger, considering what Ed Langdon has done all season 
and what James Harms has done as of late as well. They formed a really good pair on opposite wings, but Holmes was cutting through just about everyone, efficient with the ball in hand, had a goal as well. You thought he was in line for three votes for a while until very late when Dangerfield and Guthrie put their hands up for that as well. Good luck trying to sort out who deserves what, and the umpires will probably fuck it up anyway. They'll probably still give Clayton Oliver one. Holmes actually didn't make any of the coaches' vote ballots, believe it or not. Too low of a disposal count with 17? I'm not sure. I don't know, but I thought he was great. He was especially good defensively, chasing guys down, really showing off the speed. And remember, this is a guy who debuted just last year. That's the sort of breakout performance that sets a guy up for success for years to come. And it's why I have said before and fully believe that when this current core ages out, they're going to be able to hand it off and have a pretty good transition into that next generation. Other than Holmes, the player by whom I was most impressed for his versatility and his skill in so many different areas was Mark Blitzos, who seemed to do a whole bunch of a lot of things and did them all well. Had 16 hitouts as one of the two primary Ruckman along with Reese Stanley. Then also had five tackles. He was running with Christian Petraka at times, with Clayton Oliver some as well, and did a pretty good job covering them when necessary. You don't have many players who are just pure utility guys like that, but he won a lot of balls in the forward half, regardless of where exactly in the team structure he lined up. You know why he ran so well, don't you? Oh, because he was a steeplechaser. Exactly. You know, the honor roll on the Hoop Show, which goes by a fan vote each week, actually went to Tom Atkins, who had a quality game, don't get me wrong. Nine tackles, among other stats that we'll get to when we do the full stat rundown. But I didn't think this performance was anything out of the ordinary for him with the standard he set this year, which tells you a lot about just how good Atkins has been, that I'm used to this now. When I thought... He was going to be one of the weaker links in this team's defense. His success this year kind of gets swept under the rug when you have Sam DeConing playing so well. But he's been a very important part of this defensive unit. And he's one of the reasons the Cats, right now at least, look like a team that could make some real noise in September. And remember, they're doing that without Tom Stewart. No Tom Stewart. No Brandon Parfit. Stengel and Cameron missing easy goals. No matter. Beat the best team by 28. Reflects really well on Sam DeConing, especially that other players don't really have to fill those holes that Stewart left. Blitzoff's credits DeConing for allowing him to do more work in the forward half as well. And I completely agree with that. Staffbys was actually a quieter game for DeConing, and he didn't really have any moment where he really showed off the brute strength that you see sometimes, where he's able to just shove guys out of the way or Someone tries to shove him, and he just doesn't yield any ground. But he was quietly efficient in this game, whereas more often than not this year, his contributions have been a little bit louder. This was on the quieter side, and that wasn't a bad thing. Noteworthy stats for the Cats. Another good night for Mitch Duncan. Two goals, a behind, 32 disposals, 11 marks, 629 meters gained. Patrick Dangerfield validating how they had been resting him. He finished with four behinds, but 31 disposals, nine clearances, and 702 meters gained. And somehow, even after all that running, was still able to get involved on the commentary team for the St. Kilda Fremantle game on Saturday. Cam Guthrie, two goals, 28 disposals, seven tackles, six clearances. Joel Selwood, 23 disposals and 12 score involvements. Isaac Smith, a goal, a behind, 22 disposals, seven marks. 
Tom Atkins, a goal to go with those 21 disposals, 9 tackles, and 450 meters gained. Max Holmes, we mentioned, a goal and 17 disposals. Brad Close, a goal, 16 disposals, and 7 tackles. Duncan's play out of the back has allowed Close to play more of that forward role. I still love seeing Close play towards the back when possible, but they've been able to work it out to a point where it's not like they're missing anything by pushing him further forward. And thinking about that St. Kilda Fremantle game, because you were talking about Dangerfield, I'm realizing that Duncan and Close are kind of making me forget that the Cats also had Jordan Clark in the mix, because you can see the similarities with that sort of slingshot action that those guys have had in their games. Let's not get it twisted. The Demons did not play a particularly good game. For all the points the Cats left out there, the Demons just had a poor night kicking around the midfield, usually not getting intercepted, but a lot of kicks that just went out of bounds. And it wasn't because of the dimensions at Cardinia Park or anything. It was just poor kicking. If you split the ground into quarters, that third quarter from midfield leading to their forward 50 was where a lot of their really bad kicking was. They just had balls go out on the full again and again. It was just very uncharacteristic of them. Not a great night to have a clunker considering what they were up against. Nonetheless, my reaction to this is they're still the team to beat. When the D's are on their game, I think it's pretty hard to shove them off the top of the mountain. But they've been off their game more frequently than they had been last year. One player who has really been in form as of late for Melbourne is Jack Viney. And had we watched early, we probably would have expected this from him for a few years with the early career progress he had, being a 22 under 22 nominee and the club best in Ferris back in 2016. But Viney with 35 disposals, seven tackles, gained 557 meters, as if they needed another strong presence there in the midfield to go along with Christian Petraka, who kicked 3-1 and had 21 disposals, was definitely spending more time as sort of a flank on half forward, and that suited him well these past couple weeks. Clayton Oliver, a possession machine again, 34 disposals, 10 clearances, and a goal, though he did break a finger after Joel Selwood inadvertently, yes, inadvertently, kicked his hand in the process of soccering. The worst case scenario for that is a week on the sidelines, but he's played 127 consecutive games and they have nine days in between that Thursday nighter and their Alice Springs clash with Port Adelaide. So maybe he can keep that streak alive. Looking further back, Angus Brayshaw had 27 disposals, 10 intercepts and seven marks. Stephen May had 26 disposals and was the leading ground gainer for the game with 735 meters. And Jake Lever with 11 intercept possessions. Again, maybe back has allowed Lever to focus more on airborne work and do a better job in that regard. Melbourne were plus 13 on hitouts. Max Gone and Luke Jackson doing the job there again, but Geelong were positioned well around the ball and were winning ground balls, period. And were plus 18 on clearances, plus 8 from the center, plus 10 from stoppage. They were superior in general in that regard all game. I will note if you listen to some of the post game commentary, as the game went on, Joel Selwood noted that Brian Myers actually did a really good job making sure that Viney couldn't totally take over. Myers did a lot of good work off the ball. So while Viney got those big numbers, they weren't as meaningful. So a good indirect job there, I'd say, from Myers. By the way, the expected score of this game, 104.4 to 52. So the Cats could have doubled them up if they'd kicked better. And I think considering that they left 15 very memorable points out there between Cameron and Stengel. I think that's 
pretty fair, although the X-score does suggest that the Ds kicked better than they should have, and I don't know if that's entirely accurate, but this could have been more like a 40 to 45 point win for sure. Not all that common to have a matchup in prime time between Thursday and Friday twice in a season, but that's what we got between the Swans and Bulldogs, and while the Bulldogs put up a similar scoring line to their first game against each other this year in round three, they were at Sydney's mercy from the beginning. Swans came out of the gate super strong, getting out to a 26-1 lead after just nine minutes of clock time. They were dominating contested possessions, doing much better in 1v1s, and that's been a problem for the Bulldogs all season. The fact that the Dogs are still without Caleb Daniel and Taylor DeRay certainly did not help. Bulldogs made a good push in the second quarter, but they couldn't kick well enough to capitalize on it. They kicked 4-5. The Swans were just 2-3 in that quarter, but they still entered the half with a 29-point lead, 65-36. to And then the Swans had a massive third quarter to put the game to bed. Tom Padley did everything but kick for goal consistently. Joel Amarty proved a lot with how he started. Was surprised that Tim English was as quiet as he was in his return from concussion, especially when Tom Hickey was a late out with illness. Peter Laddams came in for him, but then he went down and honestly, it was Sam Reed who did an amazing job in the ruck and outside those contests as well. A really complete performance from him. Ryan Clark, another late in, won his matchup against Bailey Dale. The tagging job he did there helped lead the way. The Swans were the better team in terms of pressure throughout. And the fact that they were plus 22 in tackles, even when they won by 53, is really impressive and a surprising margin to me in that regard. The scoring margin, all things considered, does not surprise me. Sydney 17-18-120, defeating the Bulldogs 9-13-67. If you had told me before this game that Sam Reed was going to outplay Tim English and that I was going to leave with such a positive impression of Joel Amarty, I would have been shocked. I was not surprised if the Swans won this game. I was surprised by the margin. I was surprised by how bad the Bulldogs look. They did get Ed Richards and Mitch Hannon back defensively, but clearly they still really miss Caleb Daniel. And I just thought, in general, they looked awful. It was way too easy to move against them. Again, give up seven goals and 15 scores in the first quarter, and then another six goals in the third. This was just a bad performance. And I don't remember too many games last year where they just got it handed to them like this. Up until the grand final, their biggest loss all season last year was by 28. Some of the positioning calls for the Dogs made little to no sense for me. Mitch Hannon played a lot in defense, and that's not a role that suits him at all. He's been solid in the midfield when he's been given that opportunity, and I thought that him being in there alongside Lockie Hunter and Jack McRae made perfect sense, and then he just kept getting moved back. And then Adam Trelore at halfback as well, I... Did not understand that at all. That's the one that stood out to me more because Trelore is a player I really enjoyed watching this year, has been a really good follower as of late, has been pushing forward well, kicking more accurately toward goal, and it's just not a role that suits him at all, halfback. That said, he didn't play poorly in that spot, and they probably would have gotten thrashed even more defensively without him there, but he could have been more useful elsewhere on the ground. Stats of note for the Swans, and there were a lot of them because they dominated this game, Luke Parker, 28 disposals and 7 tackles. Jake Lloyd, 27 disposals and 7 marks. Tom Papley kicked 2-5 with 24 disposals and 17 score involvements. Yes, 7 of those were his own, but at the same time, that's really impressive. The Bulldogs as a team only had 5 more scores. Callum Mills, a goal, 23 disposals, 16 tackles and 7 marks. 
Hattie McCartan, 22 disposals, 14 marks and 9 intercepts. Chad Warner kicked 2-2 with 22 disposals, 10 score involvements. He gained 667 meters. Isaac Heaney, 4 goals straight, 17 disposals, 9 score involvements. Sam Reed, who was one of the most pleasant surprises on the night, a behind, 15 disposals, 13 tackles, 25 hitouts. Buddy Franklin not kicking as well lately. He kicked just 2-5, but still managed 7 marks and 10 score involvements. I said a week ago that right now he's not kicking as well, but he's making up for it because he's still getting every possible mark. James Rowbottom, the one percenter king with nine tackles, and Ollie Florent, eight marks. This was one of those complete gains from Chad Warner that makes me really excited for his continued development. And we'd been talking earlier in the year, especially around the time of the win against Melbourne, about how Sam Reed could be used differently from Buddy. I think we've seen it now. Buddy's two goals, by the way, took him to 1,029 for his career, which puts him just two behind Gary Ablett Sr. for fifth all-time. The Swans gained 3.4% from this game, and that's good, but between Franklin and Papley's inaccuracy, they probably left an additional 3 or 4% ungained. Not many impressive statistics for the Bulldogs here. I mean, they did win the free kick count 19 to 13 because it's the Bulldogs, and they're good at getting frees whether they are warranted or not. Adam Trelore was active from halfback with 32 disposals and a behind. It just wasn't the right hit for him. Jack McRae with 26 disposals. Marcus Bonapelli with a goal and a behind, 19 disposals and 9 tackles. Again, he's been going well when the rest of the team hasn't. Still, if he's only got 19 disposals, then he's not getting the ball nearly enough. And that's a reflection on the players around him rather than Bonapelli himself. I've got to reach deep into the closet here. To pull something out, going to have to dust this thing off, plug it in, make sure it still works. But it's time to boot up the good old Are You Screwdometer? On a scale of 1 to 10, how screwed are the Western Bulldogs? I'm going to give them number 9. The injuries that they've had in defense have exposed them big time. They've given up an average of 104 points the last four games. Ryan Gardner and Bailey Williams have not been going that well as of late. Gardner got exposed, especially in that first quarter. Tim English not being able to take advantage of the ruck outs is really surprising. Beyond that, their defensive 1v1 issues persisted. And even if they get some of those players back that would help in that regard, look at their next four games. St. Kilda, Melbourne, at Geelong, and Fremantle. They finished up with the Giants and Hawks, but neither of those could be particularly easy either. And when they're currently in 10, the game out of it, and at least 12 wins, and maybe even... You're really thinking it's 13. I'm starting to think that as well are required for finals. It's not looking good for the dogs. I said last week that the eight we had at the end of round 16 is likely the eight at the end of the year. And I'm more convinced about that, at least for the top seven staying after this round. Is there an inroad for the Bulldogs with the raw talent they have and how that's been able to carry them? I still think there's a very slight chance. I just don't feel good about giving them the full 10 for one reason or another. Are you giving him the full 10? I'm giving them an 8 because, as I've said repeatedly, they played well with their backs against the wall. Their backs weren't against the wall this game. This game didn't matter to them. Well, considering they didn't play well, maybe not. I've looked at the projections, and it really does seem like 13 wins is what it's going to take, which means they can only afford one more loss. And I don't see them going 3-1 and one in their next four games. But there is the possibility they still get bailed out by sheer talent because I don't think it's coaching that's going to get them there. I think Luke Beveridge is one of the best post-game quotes. 
I don't think he's that good of a coach. And honestly, that's a team where I would start looking at Alistair Clarkson or maybe some other possibilities. They seem to like Beveridge a lot, but you can't help but think they've underachieved, especially this year with the talent they have. I said it on Twitter. I'll say it again. I trust BT to correctly pronounce Dom Bedendo's surname more than I trust the dogs to make finals. And hey, BT did say Bedendo correctly like once in the final minute. Now it's time for us to do something that we really haven't done since round four. It's time for us to actually talk some legitimate positives about North Melbourne. For most teams, losing a game you led by 20 at half and 26 after three quarters would be hard to find positives, but that's the sort of position a young developing team should be in. After their Geelong game and after a couple other games, I've said... They haven't had a lot of teachable moments, a lot of learning opportunities. And in this game, they had them. They ended up losing to Collingwood 13-10-88 to 12-9-81. But I was happy with how they played. They looked like a team with real potential. Even with the mind-numbing decision to put Jason Horn Francis in the VFL this week, Luke Davies Uniac is really turning into a prime midfielder that could compete against anybody and... For the first time in way too long, Nick Larkey really stepped up. He finished with five goals. And this just looked like the sort of thing that, again, we haven't seen in three months. I'm not asking them to go out there and play like this every week. That would be a lot to ask of them to go and take a final team down to the wire. But every couple weeks, give me some signs like this that show progress, that show growth. Paul Curtis and Curtis Taylor showed some of their young potential, and there were still moments where both could improve, like learning how to attack a double team, for example, instead of getting tackled, how to handball your way out of it. Things like that. How to pace yourself so that when you have a 26-point lead after three quarters, it doesn't slip away from you. Those are good things to learn through your mistakes. And they finally did that on this day. Ultimately, Collingwood did what they had to, pulled away in the final moments, escaped with the win, did not play very well in the process. They want a clunker, and you have to be able to win your clunkers. And it was some of the younger players for Collingwood that ended up bailing them out. Noted a lot of Bill McCreary's work in the second half. Anything in terms of anything in terms of needing to be present on the ball in the middle two thirds, he's likely there. People talk about Nick Dacos a bunch, and for good reason, even though some of his disposal numbers are inflated by kickouts. He still has some defensive work to do, but pushing forward, you can definitely see that he's a day cost. He had a really nice goal, a right footer from the right pocket early in the fourth quarter to put Collingwood within eight. And Josh really went to work going from the wings again and then doing some more work toward the middle once he got into the forward half. Darcy Cameron's actually a bit older than I initially thought he was for some reason. He's 26. But after the day costs in McCreary, Cameron was the one that helped right the ship for Collingwood between Ruck's success and kicking three goals. When he kicked his third to tie it with 7.46 left on the clock, I really had a feeling that North were done for. Kangaroos didn't end up scoring another goal after Nick Larkey's fifth late in the third quarter. And that's where that teaching loan comes in in terms of being able to budget your energy. Maybe there can be some questions about conditioning as well. With a younger team, I think it's more about building up that endurance and knowing when to expend energy. While in terms of Collingwood, I think their mix of veterans from their of veterans from their past finals runs, including, of course, some like Scott Pendlebury and Steel Sidebottom going back to that 2010 flag. And Sidebottom had another smart game as well and ended up getting the last goal after intercepting a Jed Anderson kick. But I think that age mix 
suits the team really well in terms of the older players being able to teach the younger ones on the fly. You can tell where their experience is coming through in terms of keeping players just composed, looking for the right opportunities, being able to save that energy until late. They came on when they needed to. It's just that they should have been able to do it sooner, even with how well North went. Stats of note for Collingwood, Taylor Adams, 28 disposals. Adams is sometimes indiscriminate with his kicking. Definitely noticed that more in the first half. Ended up being more effective as the game went on, though. Josh Day a goal, 28 disposals, 478 meters gained. Scott Pendlebury, 23 disposals and 7 marks. Nick Day a goal and 21 disposals. Brayden Maynard, 21 disposals and 8 intercepts. Jamie Elliott, a pair of goals, 20 disposals and 7 marks. And Will Hoskin-Elliott, 8 tackles. Hoskin-Elliott is another one of those players who just knows what spaces to get to. You end up finding him getting crumbs off a lot of packs. He isn't necessarily a guy that starts plays, but he's often a really good piece toward the back end of sequences. And I think this is a game that really showed his worth. And that worth was clearly more defensive in this game when the main takeaway stat-wise is his tackling. One area in which Collingwood did notably struggle was in terms of playing against North's taller forwards. Nick Larkey and Todd Goldstein both stood out. I like seeing Goldstein play further forward instead of just work in the center circle. Better game for Callum Coleman-Jones in the center circle, certainly. With Tristan Jerry out with a potential season-ending shoulder surgery, it allows CCJ to step up and have that opportunity again. 12 hitouts for him. Seems like the most hits he's had of any kind since that fight outside that Gold Coast bar a couple years ago. Goldstein had 25 hitouts, but also ended up kicking 2-2. Larky with 5-1 on 19 disposals and 6 marks. And Darcy Moore can't cover two people at once, even with how talented he is. Nathan Murphy did keep up with his intercepting work, and Jeremy Howe did what he could. But this is a case where one out really does change an important part of a team's defense. Having said that, Larky and Goldstein were good on their own merit, regardless of who they were matched up against. In terms of other stats for North, Luke Davies-Uniak with 33 disposals, 12 clearances, 11 tackles, and 791 meters. If that doesn't scream three votes in defeat, I don't know what will. And if that also doesn't scream his career is going to be wasted at North, I don't know what will. I still really feel like this is a flash in the pan for them. I just am never confident about them replicating a performance, even rounds after the fact. Jen Anderson was pretty visible in a positive way as well. 33 disposals, 9 marks, and 7 tackles. Anderson's definitely a player that I've paid a lot more attention to this season than in years past, and it's not just because I've been paying more attention to North. Jai Simpkin with 31 disposals, Curtis Taylor with a goal on 23 touches, 10 marks at 584 meters. Jack Zeeble returned from his facial fracture and had two goals on 20 disposals and 8 marks. And it's amazing what happens when Ben Mackay actually plays in defense. 11 intercepts and 10 marks. We can now confirm that there are two different Mackays. Either that or it's a complete Jekyll and Hyde scenario in which the lone Mackay just, just plays like a completely different person depending on the team they're on. Wait, it's like, uh, like Jekyll and Hyde could be a potential title. Funny. Huh. I liked how North were consistently going for the first passing option. They were always looking to move. It reminded me of what the Eagles have done since coming out of their bye. And I'm starting to feel like that's just a good blueprint for younger teams. Combine that with being more active in terms of pressure. And you can sneak out some wins even when you're the less talented team. Because as you've said, and as I very much agree with, pressure doesn't really relate to skill elsewhere a lot of the time. You can pressure really hard even when your side has poor form otherwise. I said a couple weeks ago, I just want North to give me a reason to tune in. Let me devote two hours and 45 minutes to you 
each weekend. And they gave me a reason to do that this week. I hope they do that again. You know, they can get knocked around a bit in their six remaining games if they just put up a good showing in like three of them. Give me a reason to think there's progress here. There's hope for the future. They did that on this day. Do that again three more times. As for Collingwood, after going to Adelaide this next week, they don't have it easy the rest of the way. With how Essendon been performing lately, that round 19 game is no gimme. And then Port, Melbourne, at Sydney, and Carlton to end the season. Those last three games are all technically on the road, but it's only the Swans one that really matters in that regard. This is their seventh win in a row, and that's impressive regardless. And four of those have been within single digits, five of them within two goals. They know how to win close games one way or the other. However, one team that often struggles down the stretch in games, as we were reminded once again this week, is Richmond. Because as well as they've gone in the first three quarters plus in a lot of contests, there's a reason their only three losses since late April have been by a goal or less. And that's because they just can't manage to lock things down late. I want you to summarize your viewing experience of this game, considering you fell asleep in the final minutes. Oh, I fell asleep before the final minutes. I was really needing sleep. I've been working really hard. And with those shifts being earlier in the day, it's tough to, you know, keep anything resembling a normal sleeping schedule when you're also trying to watch the footy. It's just all came to be a really unfortunate time for me to end up crashing. It was goal for goal until late in the first quarter when Noah Cumberland got his second goal. He had his first two AFL goals in less than a minute of clock time near the end of the first quarter. Remember, he came in because Tom Lynch suffered a hamstring injury. And this was functionally his debut because he was the unused sub in their round 11 loss to the Swans. From there, Richmond seized control, scoring five of the next six goals. After the first minute of the third quarter, they were up 40, 68 to 28. From there, the Suns started to assert control over the game. The various midfielders were doing the work that we expect them to, with Tuke Miller being a central piece of their movement throughout. He ended up scoring the second of three straight goals that brought them back within 20. After Richmond got one back, Ace Oya, sco- Ace Oya scored again, and I can only imagine the reaction of everyone watching in Papua New Guinea for that. But near the end of the third quarter, Jack Revolt scored a goal to put Richmond up 28. And that's really the last thing that I remembered, that goal before three-quarter time. So I guess I crashed in that break, which makes sense. If I fall asleep while I'm watching a game, it tends to be during a quarter break or halftime. I don't just conk out during live action. So I guess your next memory was me coming into your room and telling you, wake up, go watch the fourth quarter. Yeah, that was it. I was expecting to be getting ready to watch the Kilda and Fremantle because I thought, all right, the Suns put up a valiant effort, but Richmond were too good for him at the end. Um, yeah, not the case. And remember, the Suns were without Isaac Rankin. He was in COVID protocols. And they'd had all those losses in terms of wingers and defenders, three ACLs in three weeks. So this was a big test of their depth. Once I saw Revolt's goal, I thought that it would be a great learning experience for those depth pieces and not much else. And then the fourth quarter happened. I thought this game was over by halftime. I thought... The injuries were too much for the Suns, and their hopes of finals were going to have to wait another year. They were getting their asses kicked up and down the field. They gave up the final three goals of the first half, and once Revolt scored late in the third, I thought it was done. I thought, all right, at least the Suns put up a fight, but this is over with. At least you could fall asleep and not expect the result to change. 
The Suns did get it down to 15 on goals by Swallow and Anderson. But when Jack Revolt got another with a little over 13 minutes left, that really seemed like it was done. Then Morris Rioli had a great chase down tackle on Sam Day, and it really seemed done. Seemed like it was over even after Jake Arts missed a really easy shot. And yet over those final 10 minutes and really across the fourth quarter in general, it seemed like the Tigers did everything they could to lose this game and keep the door open for the Suns, while the Suns frantically did everything they could to possibly win it. You had Jaden Short giving away a really dumb 50 for interfering with Matt Rowell. Rowell converted. That cut the lead down to 11 with 3.45 left. Even so, it seemed like enough of a margin, especially after Ben Ainsworth missed from 26 meters out with just over two minutes to go. Looking back, I can see you tweeted out this huge, no, when that actually happened. No! Oh my God, how could he do that? Or with how many O's you put in, it almost looked like, no. The Suns were able to keep pressure on even after that, though. They blasted one for midfield that was loose in the goal square, and Bobby Orchol barely got his boot on it. That made it a four-point game with a minute 13 left. Still... At that point, they need to get back in the forward 50. The Tigers are basically a clearance and a mark away from putting this to bed. But the Suns were able to end up winning that ball after losing it initially. They got into the forward 50. Ball came loose. Looked like Nick Holman had a shot towards goal that ended up wide. Then Dave marked it right next to the right goalpost. And at that point, the director of the broadcast decided it was a great idea to show the coach's box instead of the actual on-field action, which was just great timing. So in real time, we didn't get to see him playing on to Noah Anderson, who marked it with about 25 seconds left, at which time it was pretty clear that this was going to be a kick after the siren. And he put it through. It's the second after the siren goal in Suns history, both of which have come against Richmond. The first was by converted rugby player Carmichael Hunt in 2012, and that was in Cairns. So your final score after all that, Gold Coast 14-10-94, defeating Richmond 13-14-92. It's really funny. I had been thinking to myself like earlier in the week, man, after the siren goals are rare, it could be a couple of years before we get another, and I slept through the only one we've got this year. And there we were. Expected score for this game, just to show you how wasteful the Tigers were with a lot of their chances. And this is purely based on shots. So not including rushed behinds. Suns expected score 87.2. Tigers expected score 116.9. And I mean, they missed some really easy ones in front throughout that fourth quarter that kept this game alive. I think it's fair to ask at this point, do the Tigers have trouble closing games out? Well, they've led a three-quarter time in 14 games and only have nine wins to show for it. And again, those only three losses since they started the season two and four are those goal or less margins against Sydney round 11, Geelong two rounds ago, and this one against the Suns. So yes, it is a problem. Their last three losses by a combined 11 points. Now, I wouldn't quite put, say, the Carlton loss from round one in that same category where they got blitzed in the fourth quarter. That was A, it's round one. B, that was when we were learning what the Blues were all about. St. Kilda in round three was the same way. Plus, that was only a four-point lead, and they got outscored 43-6 to in that final quarter. But these other three have been been a surprising lack of discipline and execution from a team that you usually think of as being very mature, very fundamentally sound. Some of this could just be young guys learning their spots. 
But there are mistakes that just shouldn't happen, like Jaden Short giving away that 50, for example. If you don't do that, even if you end up giving up a goal out of that sequence, it probably takes at least another 30 seconds for it to happen, which would have meant everything in this case. Instead, it was an 11-point game with 3.45 to go. Meanwhile, this feels like a just outcome for the Suns, with their previous two games being losses by a combined seven points with all sorts of umpiring questions at the end in terms of calls not paid. I mean, you can say that about any close game, but those are particularly notable ones. Both of them involving re-kicks that could have been paid for contact below the knees, oddly enough. They hadn't had a close win like this all year. They finally got over the line, and the fact that it was Anderson that got it done was was awesome because he's a player who has exited his developmental phase this year and along with Matt Rowell picked right before him have become an essential part of the Suns game plan complementing Miller in the midfield. Anderson with his running ability has become one of their most essential players in the forward half. This is the sort of win and really these last two weeks altogether are the sort of games that really help you build a fan base at home playing exciting games in your own stadium. Yes it was probably like a half Richmond crowd, but they had 18,000 there. That's a step forward. And you know, the video of the young Suns fan celebrating at the end of the game, like those are the sort of people that you need to reach as a young team. That's how you build a fan base. And hey, they could have a fan base outside the Gold Coast as well, because the Oya throng had a great video of their reaction to the after the siren goal as well. We need to see all of Ace's connections be able to make it out to Metricon Stadium for a game. And maybe Ace won't dislocate his pinky finger in the celebration after a win either, because he did that this time. Also of note on the injury front, sounds like Toby Nankervis suffered a PCL injury during this game. So entering next week, the Tigers could be really thin from a tall standpoint. You have him. Yvonne Soldo broke his finger. Tom Lynch was subbed off very early with a hamstring problem. That was what allowed Cumberland to enter the game. The good news for the Tigers is that they're playing a bad team next week. The bad news is that team does happen to be really good in rock contests, so maybe we've got an added layer to their upcoming game against North Melbourne. Hey, they're coming off their best performance of the year. Or at least their best performance since round four. As for stats from this game, Took Miller, a goal, 27 disposals, 13 clearances, and 514 meters gained. Van Ainsworth kicked 2-1. Again, the one was a miss that looked fatal at the time. 26 disposals, 14 marks, 12 score involvements, 536 meters gained. Noah Anderson, your hero, had two goals, 26 disposals, 9 marks, 7 tackles, and gained 651 meters. Anderson's first goal came early in the fourth quarter on an advantage after Hugo Ralph Smith made a rare error for him in this game and caught Levi Catsbold high. So another kind of right place, right time, willing to run type of play for Anderson. And that's just the type of player he is. Really great compliment to the skill set of Miller and Rowell. Speaking of Rowell, he had a goal, 18 disposals and 11 tackles. That's just kind of standard fare for him. Brandon Ellis, another one with 26 disposals. He also had nine intercepts and eight marks. He gained 506 meters. Jack Bowes, 24 disposals, eight marks, 616 meters gained. David Swallow, a goal, 23 disposals and seven marks. Charlie Ballard, 18 disposals and 11 marks. And perhaps the most important play of the game, other than the after the siren goal. I'm surprised we didn't mention this beforehand, but one of those chances that Richmond wasted was because of a spectacular smother that Ballard was able to manage against Jason Castagna. Had Richmond kicked that, they would have been up 23 and would have definitely seemed out of reach. Instead, they didn't score again after that. 
In his revenge game, Mobby Orchol with three goals, two behinds, and nine score involvements. I still have my doubts about the Suns, even with this win, because this was the first time that they really had a defensive disappointment in general in weeks, if not months. They gave Shea Bolton far too much space, and he ended up kicking 3-3. Even one of his inaccurate kicks finding the sticks, and we could be talking about a very different outcome, where we're talking about the promise of the Suns' forward half, rather than them getting it done. Bolton also with 29 disposals, 11 score involvements, and 8 clearances, gained 551 meters. Again, functional meters gained there, going toward goal. The Suns also couldn't kick out of the defensive half in the second quarter to save their souls. That made for a lot of easy turnovers, which helped Richmond extend their lead there. It was at that time that rising star nominee Hugo Ralph Smith did some of his better work being able to capitalize off those turnovers. Ralph Smith with 20 disposals and 430 meters gained. Second quarter was also when former son Dion Prestia in his return to action definitely started being noticed a lot more. Prestia with behind 24 disposals and 504 meters gained. Other notable pieces for Richmond, Daniel Rioli, a do-it-all guy again, 31 disposals, 9 intercepts, and 471 meters gained. Though he did give up a 50-meter penalty for descent that allowed Ben Ainsworth to score in the middle of the third quarter. Jaden Short had a goal, 20 disposals, gained 628 meters. Robbie Tarrant with 10 intercepts. He's a player that we didn't really talk about much at the start of the season because he had a slower start to things, but he's become a really important piece for Richmond, especially with Nick Flostone having been out for this one. And Jack Graham had a goal and eight tackles, so not another octopus for him. I don't know if you've seen the deserve to win meter from Money Puck. It's a hockey website, obviously. But if there was deserve to win a meter for this game, it would probably put Richmond somewhere in the 80 to 90% range. I just want to say again, the Tigers really had to work hard to lose this game. It's one of those rare games where team had to work hard to lose and another had to work hard to win. If 13 wins is what it takes, the Suns still have very little margin for error moving forward. They've got Four games that they should, in theory, win, but they're going to have to steal one either at the GABA for the Q Clash or at home against Geelong in order to get that fifth win. Otherwise, they're going to need some help, and they're going to have to make sure they don't slip up against any of these bottom opponents in the next few weeks. They also likely need some help regardless, and Richmond should be able to pick up four points, as their fans knock on wood as we say that, against North Melbourne next round. Again, for all the good that North did, they're still North, and I don't expect them to be able to do that again. But three tough games after that, hosting Fremantle and Brisbane, and then going to Port. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. If you want to follow our thoughts on the footy throughout the week, you can follow us on Twitter at Americans Footy. Personally, I'm on Twitter at BenjaminHK01, but Ethan's more important here because he got a new gig. I am, as always, on Twitter at Castle Media. That's Castle with a K. And Brian Harambe, who is lying down right next to me right now, is on Instagram exclusively at Cat Named Brian, and he needs more followers. Get on it. Saturday's final two games started five minutes apart, and I definitely got the better of the two to focus on. 
because it was St. Kilda and Fremantle. Didn't end up all that pretty in the end. No, like, hype ending, no really down-to-the-wire thing, but some big momentum swings throughout this one. Ended up pretty much goal-for-goal for much of the first half, and it was a really fast-paced game. All sorts of runs back and forth. Took a while for any team to decide to slow it down. Took until mid-first quarter for St. Kilda to be the first to do so, and it worked to their advantage a couple times. Throughout the first quarter, they were winning in the midfield, were better in contests and in clearances, but they weren't as efficient as Fremantle, and that was why it stayed so close throughout the first half. It was a one-point advantage for St. Kilda at quarter time, eight points at halftime, and then when the second half began, there was an immediate shift in center clearances. St. Kilda had won 10 of 12 of those in the first half, and then Nat Fife was sent to the middle. He attended center bounces the rest of the way, and that was the coaching and positioning change that turned this game around. After scoring the last goal of the first half, Fremantle scored the first six of the second half and ended up having a 30-point lead with four and a half minutes left in the third quarter. The Saints scored the next two, and then right before three-quarter time, there was definitely an inflection point. I'm still not sure of what magnitude it was, but Dan Butler wasn't paid holding the ball against Jordan Clark. Maybe Clark managed to slightly get his foot to the ball in which case, by the rules, it is enough. Then there was a clear hold of the ball that was paid to Michael Frederick against Brad Hill. Saints fans were incensed. Saints players were incensed. Dan Butler immediately got 50 meters for descent. Frederick converted after the three-quarter time siren. Meant it was a 24-point lead at the final break, 86-62. to And the Saints only managed a goal two behinds the rest of the way. They had multiple looks in the first part of the fourth quarter, but only had two points to show for it. And once Nat Fife finally scored the first goal of the final term, a little more than halfway through it, his third goal of the game, that was all she wrote. St. Kilda 10-10-70, defeated by Fremantle 17-19-111. Certainly an opportunity missed for the Saints, especially after Richmond had faltered. And for Frio, they got the job done, got a bit of a percent cushion with it after it didn't look like it was going to be that way at all throughout the first half. The officiating at the end of the third quarter was bad, but it turned a six-goal Fremantle quarter into a seven-goal quarter. Even without that, the Dockers had completely flipped this game around, and it was strange that they did it out of clearances instead of out of their typical forward pressure, and that they were the ones to dominate a third quarter against the St. Kilda team that's known for that. Their pressure hadn't been as much of an issue throughout the game, so I think they just needed another way to get over them. And I left that game surprised with Fremantle and having not used Fife at center bounces sooner. Justin Longyear, I believe, said he was considering it as of quarter time. Once again, this game shows you just how talented the Dockers are. I forget which analyst it was that projected them dropping all the way down to seventh place. But while their schedule is pretty tough, this is a top four team. Remember that Bailey Banfield, who hit a couple of goals in this game, was going to be the medical sub until Alex Pierce had to pull out because of a calf injury. And at that time, I was concerned for Fremantle in that I thought Max King or whichever Ruck was pushing forward for them would have a better time. But that didn't end up being a real factor. I did have a feeling that the third quarter was going to end up separating the teams even before this game started because of how both of them have trended, especially St. Kilda. I just didn't expect them to get run over the way they did, and it wasn't even because they ended up losing the center clearance margin in the second half. They ended 17-8, so it was seven center clearances to six in St. Kilda's favor 
in the second half. It's just that Fremantle were a whole lot more efficient off of those. Their overall disposal efficiency was over 6% higher. 82.8% is remarkable to St. Kilda's 76.6. And in terms of inside 50 efficiency, Fremantle 59.6 to St. Kilda 40.4. I think that tells a lot of the story there. Because St. Kilda got more free kicks paid to them, more hitouts and clearances. There were plus 10 in contested possessions, but those last connections were missing for them. Fast and efficient don't usually go together. Fremantle is able to play both fast and efficient, and that's terrifying. And when they were working at those speeds, some of the on-ball work that Andrew Brayshaw and Caleb Sarong did that brought the small forwards into the game, particularly Michael Frederick and Lockie Schultz. And wouldn't you know it, both Frederick and Schultz had a pair of goals in the second half. Schultz was a standout performer in general after the break, ended up kicking 2-1 with 20 disposals and 7 marks. Brayshaw, who provided a lot of opportunities for him, a goal, 36 disposals, an octopus, and 569 meters gained. Between him and Nat Fife, you had the two stars of the day, Fife kicking 3-1 with 21 disposals. As of late, he's been a lot more accurate than he had been before, and that's a big later stage career development from him. Will Brody got plenty involved in the second half as well. Not the huge clearance numbers we saw in the beginning of the year because that's more evenly spread out, but kicked two goals on 29 disposals. In terms of Fremantle's defenders, they did manage to lock down the Saints forward line a good amount and were able to prevent them from being efficient, both in terms of inside 50 disposals and goal kicking, though, of course, some of that is self-inflicted by the offensive units. But Griffin Logue with nine intercepts, Hayden Young with 23 disposals and eight marks. And Jordan Clark is a player I've particularly enjoyed as of late. He had a behind 30 disposals and seven intercepts. Mentioned earlier with the Geelong game how I've noticed that he's been playing some of that slingshot role as well. And I'm really thinking now that his abilities out of halfback are part of what enabled Fremantle to be comfortable putting Nat Fife forward as opposed to having him run from back there. Because it's becoming more and more common to have players who are solid midfielders move toward halfback near the end of their career. And they've done well in that regard. Dane Zorko sometimes, Scott Pendlebury is the main one I'm thinking of. It's not like Clark is that great in the forward 50, but when you get him running downhill, it then allows the actual forwards to go downhill, and it all just kind of fits together really nicely. It's a bunch of players who fit the system really well. And within that, when Clark gets those touches, good things happen. He doesn't need to finish like a Nick Blakey or a Brad Close. And while Fremantle are fast and efficient, St. Kilda moved too fast for their own good much of the second half. Once they were down a couple goals, they tried to pick up the pace and got in their own way. Couldn't get those handball connections as well. They had trouble in general keeping the ball in the forward half. That meant they had high, pure disposal numbers, but the efficiency was far from sparkling. Stats of note for the Saints. Brad Crouch, 30 disposals and six tackles. He was active all over the ground. Jack Steele, 28 disposals, 8 marks, and 7 tackles. Josh Battle, 27 disposals, 11 marks, and 8 intercepts. Zach Jones, 27 disposals. Jack Sinclair, who has my least favorite mullet in the entire competition, with a goal and 27 disposals. Rowan Marshall, a behind, 23 disposals, and 8 marks. Saints now sit at 9-7. and seven. In order to get those four wins to get them to 13, they're not only going to have to take care of business against the Eagles and Hawks, but they would need to split against the combination of the Bulldogs, Cats, Lions, and Swans. The good news is they've got four of their final six games at Marvel Stadium, 
The bad news is they do have to go to Geelong, and they're going to be visiting Perth to take on the Eagles, who are certainly a tougher test in Perth than they are elsewhere. I think of the teams that aren't in the current date, the Saints still have the best shot. I still don't think it's a great shot, though. I think the eight that are in are going to be your eight. And the Saints will be in focus against the Bulldogs to start next round, looking ahead to that, because that is your Friday night game, your round opener. And quite frankly, that's probably an eliminator at this point. I think it's more so an eliminator for the Bulldogs than it is for the Saints. Again, even if the Saints were to lose that game, they could make up for it. They are still level on wins, though. I find it unlikely that they'll be able to make up 12.5% within the remaining rounds. It's also that if they were to lose that game, they'd need to go 2-1 and one against Geelong, Brisbane, and Sydney. Meanwhile, Fremantle end the round in third place, a ways off of a ways off of Geelong and Melbourne in terms of percentage, but they're right among the leaders in terms of wins. Not an easy schedule the rest of the way. They alternate home and road games the rest of the way. Hosting Sydney at Richmond, hosting Melbourne at the Bulldogs, hosting the hosted the Eagles for their Western Derby, and then finishing in the ACT against the Giants. But they've easily been the best interstate traveling team. They're the only interstate team with multiple wins in Victoria. And now they have four. The other game Saturday night, staggered by five minutes, was Port Adelaide hosting GWS. And I don't think we need to talk about this one that much because it was pretty one-sided. Port Adelaide winning 12-12-84 to 3-11-29. During the second quarter, when the power led, I believe, was 32-10, to the broadcaster said it didn't feel like a 22-point game. It felt a lot more lopsided. I think the Giants seem to think they were still playing in really shitty weather because they were really shitty. There were prolonged stretches of this game where the ball never seemed to get into the GWS forward half. Even if the power didn't hit 100 points, this was a very lopsided, dominant performance. And, you know, the 311 the Giants kicked, they only missed a couple of pretty easy shots. They just didn't have many high percentage shots to begin with. Connor Rosie kicked more goals than the entire Giants team, and actually, the Giants only outscored Rosie 29-26. to It was a really good game for Kane Farrell. I liked what I saw from Willem Drew. Sam Powell Pepper was all over the place. He was awesome, and you can tell he's become a fan favorite. Between being on the shorter, stockier side, but playing so big and physical, and being a damn good player, it's easy to see why they like him so much. I sometimes see him as a little bit of a loose cannon, can play a little bit reckless at times, but that edge to his game definitely helps with being so loved by the fan base. And I always say that he's in for one wow moment at least pretty much every game. Those moments usually involve him running over someone, and there was one of those sequences in this game. He leveled Isaac Cumming after Cumming had knocked Rosie to the ground. Also, he nearly had what would have been a goal of the week nominee, but it turned out on review, Callum Brown barely got a finger on it. Looking at the expected score at AFLX score on Twitter, Port kicked a little bit above expected, 84 from expected 76.4, GWS 29 from 53.7, so they got run over regardless of how well they were kicking. All three of their goals came within 30 meters. And that isn't great. It was not a wet night, but they played like it was. I will mention, unfortunately, 
Phil Davis suffered another injury that will end his season. He was trying to cover Charlie Dixon, and I guess he landed poorly. And I was surprised if they didn't stop the game and give him time to get helped off, but Dixon ended up kicking the goal, so there was time in the aftermath. Dixon did point to Davis and made sure that Giants personnel were to him before he ended up kicking any further, though, so that was a good gesture. Unfortunately, with Davis having had this hamstring injury history and with this one being even more serious, there are definitely some fears that this could end his career, even though his contract is not up yet. Going toward Dixon, though, he spent a lot more time as a Ruckman in this game. And after what he was able to do against Jared Witts in that Gold Coast win, I've been seeing that more the past couple and looks like it worked here. His presence has also let Mitch Georgiatis do way more. It's been a pretty crappy year for Georgiatis in a lot of different ways between not getting the ball much, kicking poorly when he has had it. It's funny, Todd Marshall was able to really establish his role when Dixon went down. Georgiatis clearly benefits from having Dixon out there. Stats of note report, Zach Butters has been more active as of late, had a behind and 26 disposals. He was on form before getting injured, and it's good that he found that again quickly, especially when his running buddy Rosie has been so good as of late. Rosie, four goals, two behinds, 24 disposals, 11 score involvements. Again, the Giants had 14 scores for the entire game, and Rosie polled 10 coaches' votes yet again. He's polled at least eight coaches' votes in each of Port's last five wins. Sam Palpever kicked 1-2 on 25 disposals, 10 marks, and 8 score involvements. Travis Boca behind on 24 disposals. Jeremy Finlayson with 22. Again, not the best Ruckman in terms of pure hitouts, but good immediately off those contests. And he also didn't have to go up in the Ruck as much either with Dixon doing more work there. So he was able to spend more time in the forward third of the ground. Kane Farrell can play pretty much anywhere on the ground. Had two goals straight from 16 disposals and eight marks. He's one of the best long kicks in the game. And in terms of pure defenders report, Ryan Burton gained 506 meters in a 20 disposal performance. And Alir Alir had 11 intercepts. There are a couple of times when he's had to be great this year, but with Burton improving and Port just scoring as much as they have, it hasn't been as necessary for him to carry them the whole way. He actually kind of got to roam around a little bit. Outside of the 50, he actually ended up kind of tagging Nick Haynes at times. Haynes was playing a bit more forward, and he was able to do that because Clurry and Houston did so well in the back that he didn't have to stay there the entire time. He was able to still rack up the intercepts, and he was able to do it at different spots on the ground. I remember when Tom Clurry was out when he was in protocols for the Gold Coast game, Alir did have to do more stay-at-home work there. And Dan Houston coming off halfback has been a prominent ball mover for them from the very start of the year. And he's one and he's one of the players that has really come to my attention throughout this year for him. Even if this team does end up missing the finals, and we've talked about how hard it's going to be for them to crack the eight, they've made some strides defensively as this year has gone on. That shouldn't be lost, even if this season ends up being considered a failure. Stats of note for the Giants, most of which were accumulated in the first and fourth quarters. Stephen Canelio kicked a behind, finished with 32 disposals to lead all players. Josh Kelly, 27 disposals. Tim Taranto, a behind, 23 disposals and 7 tackles. Harry Himmelberg gained 518 meters, recorded 22 disposals, but kicked a pair of behinds. Callan Ward, 22 disposals, 14 intercepts, and 9 marks. 
their backs were constantly against the wall, and he was one of the few who did a pretty good job to keep them from completely capsizing. You don't call a 55-point loss when they only kick three goals completely capsizing? I mean, in the sequences where they were getting absolutely throttled pressure-wise, they didn't capsize, and Ward had a lot to do with that. Jesse Hogan kicked 2-2 with 16 disposals, so normally it's a good day at the office when you're responsible for two-thirds of your team's goals. When it's two-thirds because you kicked two out of three, that's not exactly something to be proud of. And for the rest of the Giants, a positive that they can take from that is that they only kicked the second worst score of the year. North kicked 3-6-24 against Fremantle back on Friday, May 6th in round eight. I was surprised that the Giants only won hitouts by eight and didn't really do them much good because they lost clearances by 11. By Dixon, both in those immediate contests and a bit out of them as well then. I hope that in their remaining games, the Giants are more competitive than this. It's understandable for a team towards the bottom of the table to have an absolute brick shitter of a game like this. I just hope it doesn't happen frequently because if it happens frequently, then you're north. And if it happens frequently for Mark McVeigh, then... Despite all the good work he's done, it's unlikely he'd get a shot to be their full-time coach. On to the Sunday games, and for the second week in a row, the most shocking win goes to Essendon, even though Brisbane had to make nine changes. Kalamachi, Harris Andrews, Noah Answorth, Kadeen Coleman, and Dan McStay were all in COVID protocols, and it might be worse for them this week. They're in full lockdown as far as... They said they're going to go in full lockdown to try to preserve the personnel they can ahead of their game in Canberra. Additionally, Jared Berry had a hamstring injury. Jackson Pryor hurt his quad. And we had known already about Daniel Rich and Dane Zorko from last round. Essendon had a couple notable outs, though, because Darcy Parrish's calf strain kept him out and it could keep him out for as much as four weeks. A later out, though, was Mason Redman through COVID protocols. For some reason, Jake Kelly was initially omitted despite 20 disposals at 100% efficiency and a rare goal last round, but he was brought back in. And it's weirdly a third time a surprise omission for Essendon has earned a late reprieve. Dylan Shield had it happen in round seven and not dead Ben Hobbs just the previous round, round 16. So maybe it's a so maybe it's a sort of wake-up call that they were initially omitted. Not exactly sure what to make of it, but it's happening too frequently for me to think that is pure coincidence. Now, could this be like a Chris Scott type deal where they're never actually planning on omitting the guys and it's just to throw an opponent off? Or are these actual situations where they're getting back in last minute? We can't answer that, but we can speak to how the Bombers were in lockstep with Brisbane in the opening. Zach Merritt was getting all sorts of possessions. Essendon had their nose in front for much of the opening term, and it took a really nice goal from Lincoln McCarthy to get Brisbane level with him at 2-3-15 at quarter time. After going goal for goal for the first part of the second quarter, Essendon kicked three in a row, a couple free kicks against Brandon Starcevich, though the first one was a pretty soft one, against Kyle Langford. Admittedly, though, it did feel like a ball-don't-lie moment because an awful bounce, an almost right-angle bounce, Denied Harry Jones of a goal. But Langford gave Essendon the lead. Scheele and Wright scored. At the half, Essendon led 48-32. And they're... And... I scrolled too far. And they were plus 69... Nice! In uncontested possessions. 142-73. to 
it was very clear that the outs for Brisbane really robbed them of their normal defensive structure. But they also just didn't have any pressure as well. And you can pressure even when you are talented. So that surprised me, especially when you've got such a good coach as Chris Fagan at the helm. It's one thing if you're not pressuring as much to conserve energy, but that didn't seem to be the case. The Lions were just kind of on their heels, which is weird. I mean, we've seen a couple times where they've gotten off to poor starts, but by halftime, usually get things under control. How much of an excuse can you make with the nine outs, though? I mean, how many of those guys are really defensive pressure guys? I guess Rich helps with that, but Andrews is more of an interceptor. Achi can fall back sometimes, but he hasn't been as prominent this year. I mean, I see Coleman more roaming in open space than directly pressuring whoever's got the ball. And Rich is more of a kicking away guy as well. I'm thinking mostly it was people being in unfamiliar spots that caused them to that caused them to be more conservative and kind of just implode as a defensive as a defensive unit as a whole. And it's not like they completely got blown out either. Because their offense managed to keep up a decent amount. There were a couple really strong defensive performers for Essendon all day, especially in the second half. Jai Caldwell did an excellent job tagging Lockie Neal. Best tagging job on him all year. Jane Laverty did well, but it was Brandon Zerk Thatcher that I noticed the most. And again, the thing that caused us to talk about him the most before this was him getting his pants pulled down. He closed down a lot of Lions chances in the second half was an intercept marking magnet in the fourth quarter in particular. Lincoln McCarthy kept the Lions with a couple good kicks, but Essendon were always at least a step ahead, if not more. They led by 12 at three-quarter time and with a lot of Brisbane's chances in the fourth quarter getting cut off, even though they had more possession time, it seems, than weren't able to claw their way in front. I thought the best chance they had was with just under six and a half minutes left when Oscar McInerney marked against Nick Hind, who was another overall good performer. Alistair Lynch said that he doesn't usually miss these, and we love you, Lynchy, but you should know better than to give the commentators curse. Big O kicked it behind. Instead of being a one-goal game, it was 11 points. And even though the Lions got the next goal, Essendon were able to hold on. Brisbane 13-12-90, defeated by Essendon 15-10-100. Their second win in a row against a team in the eight. And it does not strike me as a coincidence that Kyle Langford has figured so prominently in both of those games. You may recall he was subbed off early in the opener against Geelong, came back in against West Coast, clearly got his land legs back then because he's been a big part of both of these really impressive wins since. The midfield is just so much more competitive against top opponents when Langford is out there. He really takes this team to a different level, and I never really appreciated his game last year. And I think the way he's played and the way the Bombers have played as a team with him back out there says a lot about just how valuable he is. And he ended up pushing forward as well for a good portion of the game. I mean, there's a reason he ended up kicking four goals. If there's one player who put him over the edge, he's the guy. I also want to mention, in part because of Nick Hind and in part because of really a team defensive effort, they were able to withstand that Mason Redmond absence. I thought that was really going to do them in. Hind, Laverty, and Jordan Ridley as well. Important interceptors there. Ridley also did a really good job on Joe Danaher. I thought where they were really going to miss Redmond, though, was his ability to move the ball out of the back. That was where Nick Hines stepped up and was the big ground gainer for them. 
Remember, they were also missing Archie Perkins, who I think really plays that spark plug role well for them. It's a little bit like Tim Membry, although made with a bit more flash to his game, where once he gets the ball in the forward 50, you know something good's going to happen. And that's where I thought Harry Jones did a really nice job filling in. Jones wasn't able to kick a goal again. He had that one that the ground robbed from him with that rotten bounce. First time this year, he hasn't kicked one. He hasn't impressed a lot of people thus far this year, but he's definitely continuing to develop well as a forward. And I think that spark plug sort of energizing role is a really good spot for him. And remember, he doesn't need to be that key guy because Peter Wright played so well. One big thing that I said in our last recap was that it was a great sign the Bombers were winning despite a lesser game from two-meter Peter. In this one, he got all sorts of runs and leads. That was where Harris Andrews being out stood out the most, but he was able to elevate Essendon even more. Wright kicked 5-2 on eight marks, and he had nine score involvements. Lineford kicked 4-1. Matt Guelphy also ended up with a goal. He got the closing goal after the siren, after he was caught high by Brandon Starson, which I know that's a call you didn't like. He went low to the ground to try to get the ball, and it was kind of a wrong place, wrong time thing for Starcevich. Considering that the call was made with about 30 seconds left, there was no way the Lions were going to be able to get all the way down the field and do anything. But yeah, I didn't like that call. Doesn't seem like it was as questionable as some of the others from this round, though. Guelphie also with 20 disposals and 8 scored involvements. Another one of those better energizers. Dylan Scheel with a goal, 25 disposals, 8 clearances. Jai Caldwell a goal, 26 disposals, 9 scored involvements, 7 tackles, and 513 meters. Really put his hand up as a top-level tackler. Zach Merritt had a behind 31 disposals, 11 scored involvements, 8 tackles, gained 565 meters. Between Caldwell Merritt and Nick Hind, especially out of the back, 681 meters gained on a 27 disposal effort. You didn't really notice that Mason Redmond was out, and it was a really positive sign that they were able to fill that hole. I thought Charlie Cameron's pressure would really get to them, and instead, Brisbane really didn't put on any pressure. And again, Brandon Zirk Thatcher really stepped up in the fourth quarter, especially. 21 disposals, eight intercepts, four of which were intercept marks. Jordan Ridley also had three intercept marks. Not a lot of great stat lines for the Lions, but Hugh McCluggage kicked a behind, finished with 29 disposals and eight score involvements. Brandon Starcevich, 26 disposals, eight intercepts, seven marks, 601 meters gained. Really had to be more in focus as that key defender with Andrews out. And I didn't notice Marcus Adams as much as him, which surprised me a little bit. Oscar McInerney kicked 2-2, had 12 score involvements. He got more involved in the forward 50 than usual. But again, that huge miss late. And Mitch Robinson, two goals, 19 disposals. It was a very nice game for him, and I hope he's able to stay in even with a healthier team coming hopefully in the next week for the Lions. Rob Vlog still has that innate ability to energize, and even if he does make some dumb mistakes and give up a pretty understandable descent 50, sometimes he's able to offset that. And when you're one of the only players along with Lincoln McCarthy who kicks accurately toward goal, you got a whole lot of value there. McCarthy ended up kicking three straight, and a couple of them were really nice plays. I thought he was the best player for Brisbane in their forward half. I want to note, for a lot of the fourth quarter, this felt like a game that the Lions were going to be able to come back and win. It seemed like Essendon was about to run out of gas, and when Stringer had a bad miss that meant they were only up 19 instead of 24, you really thought there was a shot, especially when Charlie Cameron scored not that long after to cut it to 82-69. They got it down to 7 a couple times, got it to 5 with 
a little under five minutes to go, but could never get the next one when they needed it. And you know what the best part of all that was? It meant that there was happy singing in Uganda for the second week in a row. To be talking this positively of a team in 16th is refreshing. And hey, they should get at least one more win this year. They've got North in round 20. They go to GWS after that. And you know what? With their recent form and how they were able to make up for their absences and who they might be able to get back this next round, don't sleep on them against the Suns. Now watch that game be completely uncompetitive. Hopefully they don't fly too close to the sun. <sighs> you know what wasn't a competitive game? The one that started during Brisbane and Essendon. Hawthorne with a rare home game at Marvel Stadium. Pretty understandable considering it came against Adelaide. There was no way that matchup was going to draw a crowd necessary for the G. Don't get me wrong. They've been fun teams to watch. Fun teams to watch for most of the year. But the numbers wouldn't be there. I said a week ago that I was looking forward to seeing Hawthorne against non-juggernaut competition, and I was really impressed with what they showed. You know, Jai Newcomb didn't have a huge game, but it hardly mattered. I really liked what I saw out of Jager O'Meara. He was active all over the ground. So was Jarman Impey, who got rewarded for his hard work a couple of times. Also, Ned Reeves showed that he's actually more than just a Ruckman which I really didn't expect. But Ben McAvoy's return meant it was really easy for Reeves to take up positions elsewhere. And when he kind of played as if he were a half forward, a very tall half forward, he did a really good job of it and was very involved in handballs and good sequences that led to a couple of those scores as the Hawks really pulled away by halftime in this one. The Crows did have a chance to make this a game in the third, in which they held Hawthorne to just three points, but could never really get traction, even when they had sustained forward time. And that was basically it. Hawthorne 13-8-86, defeating Adelaide 8-6-54. There are some Crows fans that are pretty tired of Matthew Nix already, and they're not seeing progress. Once again, it seems like a team that was a pretty competitive outfit at the start of the year, even against good opponents, and has really regressed. One thing I want to note, Kane Corns was actually the first to point this out, and the broadcasters on 7 for this game seem to agree, and looking at it, I can definitely see it as well. A lot of times, Adelaide's ball use and movement just doesn't make sense. They have a lot of what in the NFL would be called hospital passes. I guess the term exists in AFL as well, you know hospital kicks, etc., where they're just the guy who's supposed to either take the handball and run with it or supposed to mark the kick is put in the spot where he's just going to get drilled. And some of that's just not having the right touch on the ball. Some of that's decision-making in the first place. You know, should I be kicking here? Should I be handballing here? Or should I look to advance in a different direction? Because a lot of times they've just been outnumbered in those spots. Or even if it's been one-on-one, the opponent's able to level them with a huge hit. Is it regression or is it that the rest of the competition has been able to read them really easily and catch up to what they're doing really quickly? Regardless, those sorts of hospital passes are definitely teachable moments. And you got to be thankful that they didn't result in any collisions that were too bad in this game. But the fact that they keep happening is what's so concerning. And in a game where the big disposal getters for Adelaide didn't gain ground along with it, it makes it even more confusing. This is Hawthorne's 1,000th lifetime win between the VFL and AFL. Congrats to the Hawks. Sixth time is the charm. 
Stats of note for Hawthorne in this win. Blake Hardwick, 32 disposals and 8 marks. Dylan Moore didn't kick a goal, but still finished with 29 disposals, 8 score involvements, 7 marks, 7 tackles, and 498 meters gained. Good for him to have a more even game throughout. Been waiting to see that from him. He's always a really good starter, but like much of the team, he's run out of gas really early. And I think his performance reflected on the entire team in this one. Jack Scrimshaw, a behind, 25 disposals and 9 intercepts. Chankwath Jath wasn't great, but managed to parcel himself out over the four quarters. We've talked about him being such a hot starter and then really falling off. And this time, he conserved himself a little bit better, finished with 24 disposals, 8 marks, 594 meters gained. James Sicily wanted to start a lot of fights. He's one of those guys you'd love if he's on your team and hate if he's on any other. He finished with 23 disposals, 13 marks, 8 intercepts, 520 meters gained. Connor Nash represented endurance on a team that often struggles with that. He finished with a goal, 22 disposals and 8 score involvements. Harry Morrison got a goal to go with his 21 disposals and 7 marks. And Mitch Lewis kicked 5 goals all in the first half. Seemed like he was going to threaten for 8, 9, maybe even 10, and then never really had another chance to add to that. But Lewis ended up kicking 5-1. Again, all 6 of those scoring shots were in the first half. He had 11 score involvements. The big stats for Adelaide are kind of what you expect. Ben Keyes kicked 1-1 on 30 disposals. Matt Crouch with 28 disposals. was nice to see him back up at the top level after having had to languish in the sandful for a bit. The big concern is they got those big disposal numbers and just didn't gain ground with them. Keyes gained 213 meters. That's just over 7 per touch. Crouch didn't even gain 4 per touch, just 102. If you're going to be a player through whom the ball moves a lot, you've got to actually move yourself as well. Tuke Miller isn't the biggest forward runner for the Gold Coast Suns out of his midfield. That would be Noah Anderson, but he still gains much more ground per touch because he knows that's what's necessary. Defensively, Jordan Dawson with an octopus and Will Hamill, nine intercepts. The team stat that stands out here is that the Crows are just 34.1%. Is that the Crows had just 31... Is that the Crows had just 34.1% percent disposal disposal efficiency. Why did I keep messing up with PNF sounds? Good night. Hi. <laughs> um, I'm I'm going to vanish quickly. The big team stat. The big team stat. The, the most incriminating team stat for Adelaide is that they were just 34.1 percent on disposal efficiency inside 50. Hawthorne did have a good defensive game, but Adelaide were still easy to read. And a lot of times their ball use just makes no sense. And when it didn't, Hawthorne's raw speed proved to be really useful, meant they were faster to get to those questionable passes. Now, how much of this for Hawthorne is because they played against Adelaide? That's the big question that I have going away from this one. They got a couple very winnable games up next, hosting the Eagles and then a Tasmanian tussle at Blundstone Arena against North. Both teams have played better as of late, but North are North, and Sam Mitchell knows the Eagles system because he played and coached in it. And I'm wondering now how much Mitchell contributed to them winning the flag when it seems like the Eagles have stagnated so much since under Adam Simpson. On to the final game of the round. As happens more often than not, the round ended in Perth. Well, we're going to defer to Benjamin because this is the West Coast Eagles game. But I just want to mention they outscored Carlton in the middle two quarters. Yeah, they won the middle two quarters 53 to 36. The problem is they didn't score in either of the bookend quarters. And that is 
insanely rare. It's the first time any team has managed to go scoreless in the first and fourth since 1919. St. Kilda managed that in round 12 against South Melbourne, and we remember those teams, all right. This is a rare game where each quarter had a very, very distinct flavor to it. Carlton were capitalizing off all sorts of turnovers in the first quarter, and they still left a decent amount of points on the board because they only kicked 5-4-34. As for West Coast, on to the second quarter, and the Eagles were dominating from stoppages. It was really weird to just see things turn that quickly. They scored three of the first four goals in the quarter. Jack Darling did good work both on and off the ball. He kicked the first Eagles goal and then helped Shepard home a Willie Rioli kick after really took the ball from Patrick Cripps, of all people. That was a really impressive play. The Blues were able to stabilize in the middle of the second quarter. Corey Durden ran in a goal after Charlie Carnell had a nice tap to him. It was an 11-point turnaround after Jacob Wiederick touched what would have been Josh Kennedy's 700th goal for the Eagles. Kennedy did end up getting that in the earlier parts of the third quarter, and that was their last score. At least it was a memorable one. Five of the Eagles' seven goals came from stoppage in the second quarter. Then it was an arm wrestle with a lack of any real flow in the third quarter, and I was surprised that Kennedy managed to get another goal. But it was off a turnover where Jermaine Jones just kept running and got involved in the sequence twice. That's the kind of guy that you need to have as an energizer. Maybe he's going to be that spark plug for the Eagles going forward. Maybe a mix of him and Brady Hoff. But I have to look longer term for that because the fourth quarter was all blues. It was one-way traffic for them from dominating the clearances. They had five of the first six of the quarter and didn't slow down from there. Harry McKay got a couple more. He and Charlie Kernow ended up with five goals each combined. They more than covered the Eagles because it was West Coast 8-5-53, defeated by Carlton 17-14-116. A big bounce-back win for the Blues, one that they didn't necessarily have the easiest time in for about a quarter and a half, but they dominated down the stretch, and it's just percentage separating them from the top four. It's hard to have many big takeaways from either team for this one because of how much the quarters contrasted from each other. For me, it's mostly acknowledging Carlton's strengths throughout the Oval, especially in the middle two-thirds, getting on the right side of clearances. West Coast were plus 19 in hitouts. There's the raw power of Nick Van Nui at display, but clearances were plus 12 to Carlton, and Patrick Cripps unsurprisingly led the way there. In terms of the Blues' back line, great to see Wiedering back out there. His impact was instantly noticeable. And for the Eagles, other than Jones, it was more the veteran guys that did the better work. So it's not a win off which they can build all that much. I mean, hopefully Jake Waterman continues getting on the end of good sequences, but that's one guy. Another big game for Sam Doherty, who has a real case for all Australian. 28 disposals, 8 marks, 7 intercepts, 602 meters gained. Adam Shera, 27 disposals, 7 marks, 506 meters gained. You were concerned that he hadn't gotten up to speed since coming back. I think we could put those concerns to bed after that performance. Matthew Kennedy, 27 disposals, 7 marks, 7 tackles. George Hewitt, 26 disposals and 8 clearances. He had 8 disposals in the forward half in the first quarter. That was more than the Eagles had as a team in the opening quarter. And then those trends completely reversed in the second. Sam Walsh finished with a goal of behind 25 disposals. Patrick Cripps, a goal, 24 disposals and 9 clearances. And then Charlie Curnow and Harry Mackay each kicked 5-3, and they combined for 15 marks. 
from the beginning this year, we realized how much the Blues miss having both of them in. It's one thing for a team to have one strong forward target. I mean, it's great to have, but it also means that the opponents know where the ball is going most of the time, at least the plurality of the time, and they'll be able to put better matchups on him, maybe get more numbers around him. Once you have a second, you've got to budget things a whole lot differently. Not a lot of huge stat hauls for the Eagles, the ones who were prominent other than Josh Kennedy for kicking a pair of goals, including his 700th as an Eagle, were other familiar faces. Andrew Gaff, 30 disposals, 8 marks, 502 meters gained. Shannon Hearn, 28 disposals, 10 marks, 8 intercepts, 699 meters gained. He and Tom Morass did what they could, but it was never going to be enough. And Luke Shuey with 22 disposals and 6 tackles going through the middle. This performance is definitely a sobering one for the Eagles. They played three pretty good games coming out of the bye. They had gotten that win over Essendon. I would love for them to be able to get the job done over Hawthorne, but that is in Melbourne. And other than round 21 against Adelaide, I'm not super optimistic about them getting another. As for Carlton, they ride the ship in a big way after disappointing against St. Kilda and just in time for a massive clash with now top of the ladder Geelong. Their next couple games after that are easier, hosting the Giants and then going to the Crows. Yes, they're going to Adelaide, but I trust the Blues still. Their last three, though, at the Gabba, then Melbourne, technically a road game and technically a home game against Collingwood. If they can at least hold on to fifth, that's going to be really impressive. It's probably going to take four wins in that stretch to get to fourth, and I don't necessarily see it for them right now. But if the Lions falter or perhaps continue to have virus issues, then it becomes more plausible. Regardless, though, I think it is fair to expect the current eight to stay the eight the rest of the way. If you had to bet on one change being made to the eight, though, what would you expect it to be? I think it would have to be the Saints sneaking in, I guess, at the Tigers' expense? St. Kilda could make up some ground against the Eagles and Hawks, and I'm not sure if they like them over the Bulldogs. That round 23 game was going to be crucial for them, hosting the Swans at Marvel. If I had to make one, I would honestly say maybe Gold Coast at the Tigers' expense. Richmond have had trouble closing games late, as we've said earlier in the episode. And if they somehow only need four wins to get in, I think there's still somewhat of a chance that 12 wins could cut it. Essendon, West Coast, Hawthorne, and North are definitely winnable for them. I will say, considering how they won this round, that's the sort of game that gets you thinking, man, maybe the Suns are on like that destiny path. Even if they are to consider what they've lost during the season, you think really positively of them going ahead. And, and that's why I think it was the right call for them to extend Stuart Dew when they did. I was skeptical of it at the time, but with the form they've continued to have since, good on Gold Coast for doing it sooner rather than later. Mark of the Week time. Last week's Mark of the Week could end up being the Mark of the Year. It was Hayden Young getting way up over Lockie Jones. And who knows if Mitch Georgiatis from that same game could end up being a top three as well. This week's nominees are Tom Duday getting up over Connor McDonald. Harry Edwards with a one-handed mark while being tangled up with Charlie Kernow, and Cam Zerhar, who took a leaping mark over his teammate, Nick Larkey. Zerhar is the clear winner here. Yep. Neither of the other ones had that wow factor. Dude did a good job getting separation, and one-handed marks are tough, but we've seen better, like Charlie Dixon a couple years ago, I'm thinking, when he was being pulled down by the other arm. But Zerhar getting a leap like that over his teammate and having Jeremy Howe, of all people, looking on at ground level is another great touch. As for goal of the week, 
Last round, you had Caleb Sarong, last year's goal of the year winner. He picked up the ball from an opponent's fist, ran and kicked on the left from the near left boundary. Three really solid nominees out of that. I would have been satisfied had any of them gotten the nod. For this week's nominees, something weird happened. The initial video had Luke Bruce as one of the nominees. It was the first one in the video. He had a goal where he took a crumb in the deep right-hand pocket, spun out of Jake Saligo's tackle and snapped on the left. But by the time we went to look at it again, Bruce had been supplanted by Cam Guthrie. His extreme angle goal from the right boundary after Max Holmes stripped James Harms of the Sharon. First time I'd ever seen anything like that. The other nominees, Lincoln McCarthy pushing Massimo D'Ambrosio away from the ball before crumbing and deking Bailey Banfield, uh, deking Bailey Banfield and then Caleb Sarong before kicking straight on. I think this one's definitely between Guthrie and McCarthy, and I'm going to play the homer card here and actually go with Cam Guthrie. A tougher kick on its own, perhaps, from the angle, but McCarthy is the clear winner for me. Guthrie didn't make the entire play like McCarthy did. McCarthy was impressive in getting the ball and then kicking it. You know, two of the leagues that I follow, the NFL and NHL, have both had a sex scandal pop up in the last week, so is footy next? I mean, we've had something close to it, I guess, with Jordan Dugowie. Is the dam about to burst again with him or someone else? I don't wish it upon anyone or any club, but seems like a sporting trend right now. For reference, the NHL one is Ian Cole of the Carolina Hurricanes getting with their sideline reporter. He is married and has two children. She was engaged. She is now not engaged. The NFL one, New York Jets quarterback Zach Wilson apparently getting with his mom's friend. There are so many layers to this. The most benign of which involves the fact that his university's mascot, Brigham Young University's mascot, is the Cougars. For those of you that don't know, BYU is a Mormon school with a very strict honor code that basically will kick you out for holding hands. This one became a subject of discussion when it was discovered that Wilson's ex-girlfriend is now dating Dax Milne, who was Wilson's top receiver both in high school and college. And through the Instagram comments of a photo there, it was revealed that things ended between Wilson and this girl because Wilson was getting it with his mom's friend. So there's that. If something comes up, we'll definitely comment on it at Americans Footy, and we'll definitely also dedicate some time to it in a future episode. You can follow me at BenjaminHK01. You can follow me at Castle Media. And you can find Brian Harambe exclusively on Instagram at CatNamedBrian. We'll see you in just a couple days for the round 18 preview. David Noble got fired by. 